0: Well, hey, for those of you who are first-timers, my name is Steve Hambrick, and I'm the pastor here at Vintage. And listen, I just love being at Vintage. I mean, we have a blast, a lot of fun. God moves. There's no better place in the world to be. Uh, we're excited. If you if you don't know, uh, obviously we are packed here today. This is our third service so far this weekend. We are about we're a few weeks out. We don't really know how the snow impacted uh, our build out, but we're building out a brand new space down at Crossroads. If you go that way and get to the the stoplight where the Starbucks and Chevron and Kroger is, behind the Kroger, there's an L-shaped building. You see a Zumba Fitness. I'm there every day, at least three times, right? There's a Zumba Fitness there and a Dixie Crossroads. You see a neat repeat sign. We're basically right there in the right in the V in about. Four doors this way, four doors that way. Total of twelve thousand square feet. We're process of building it out, and so and and we'll be letting you know. But in about four weeks, we won't be here anymore. And so in five, a month, if you come back in a month, don't come here. Right, go that, go over there, and um, we're excited about that. So, all right, well let's jump in. Uh, if you weren't here last week, we were having this conversation about Joshua, and we said. Uh, in Joshua chapter three, Joshua is at a new beginning, right We said he's at a new beginnings. Moses has died. Um, they are in the process of leaving the only life in the in the desert they've ever this generation's ever known. And they have a brand new leader who is, you know he is untested. We have no idea how good he's going to be, right? And so he doesn't have any idea how good he's going to be either. So they're all having a freak-out moment about Moses dying and a new beginning, right? And they're having their own little freak-out about leaving the only life they've known for this new life they're about to enter into over here, right? And, And so they're all having this moment. And so... Joshua, Joshua then begins to speak, and, and at one point, one of the things that he said, kind of a priority for this, this new beginning. And we said, we're in a new beginning. You've all hopefully left 2010, like we said, right? And you're all hopefully launching the 2011. You have no idea what 2011 holds for you, right? That's a new beginning. And we said that one of the things that Joshua said, kind of a priority for any of us as it relates to new beginnings, is simply this. He says in Joshua 3:22 and 23... Basically, hey, listen, the presence of God is about to pass in front of you, the Ark of the Covenant. The presence of God is about to pass in front of you. And when it does, step out from the position that you're in and begin to follow it because you, we've never been this way before. We have no earthly idea where we're going, and the presence, God himself, has already been there, because he lives the beginning, the middle, and the end, and everywhere around, all at the same time. So he knows where we're going. Follow his presence. And we said, if we're going to be a people who, who follow his presence, then we have to be in view of seeing him, because you can't follow somebody you can't see. So we have to. So he's saying, listen, be a people of his presence. Focus on him. Know where he is. Spend your life focusing on him. But the question we asked was this. How could how could Joshua be so confident that in following the presence, they would get where they needed to be? And we said the answer was simple. He knew God. It was, he knew God. And he knew him. Therefore, he had confidence in him. And because he had confidence, he could trust God. God, remember we said that God had un, in, incomparable navigating prowess. Do you remember that phraseology we used last week? This, um, this incomparable navigating prowess. God knew where he was going and where he was leading the people. He needed, they needed to follow him, and Joshua said, hey, I know him. And because I know him, I have confidence in him. Therefore, I trust that if you'll simply get your bottoms behind him and follow him, you'll get to where you need to go. Fantastic. And so we said that for our lives, this new beginning that we're in of 2011, or maybe it's a new beginning in your life in general, no matter what it may be, that, that there's, all, there's this key for us that we have to be a people who know God, who are following him, who see him, and we are relating to him. And so that's where we are this morning. We said last week that we, um, we talked about, this, about knowing God this way, knowing God as a caring father by how he relates to us. Knowing God is a caring father by how he relates to us. And we took a, a picture of Isaiah. as a snapshot of God in Isaiah 41 in the first few verses of chapter 42. And in chapter 41, we said basically God just said, listen, hey, I'm going to bring all the nations to me, okay? And we're going to have a contest to see who has the better God. You bring your th- millions of gods and I'll bring my little, my, just my little self, and we'll see who wins. But I'm going to go ahead and defend myself and pretty much say I'm awesome, right? I literally am the sum of all, all. I mean, I, I am unbelievable. There's nothing compared to me. And at one point, he literally says, and your gods, literally they're worthless compared to who I am, right? So he defends himself, talks about himself. And it's just this powerful moment of God defending himself. And talking about himself, and it's just this beautiful picture. of Defending, and what we came away with, and then we talked in, in the in the first five verses, chapter forty-two, of talking about the servant who was going to come. We said these four things about knowing God as a caring father by how he how he uh, how he relates to us. Number one, relating to us as being all powerful, right? Relating to us as all powerful. We said, hey. God is all-powerful. He's defended his own case. He's come and told us in his own words that he is all power. He has all authority. We said, listen, it's imperative as human beings that we ask God for a, a revelation. You know what I mean? Like an like a, aha, awakening moment, a revelation where we go, God, oh, my gosh, he really is all-powerful. He really has all authority. He really is the god of over everything, and if I give myself to anything or anyone other than God, I'm just wasting my life. It's worthless, right? He's all authority, all power, and we can relate to Him. He relates to us that way. We follow a God who has all power, all authority. That should fill us with confidence, right? We like to we like to walk behind the big guy in a fight, right? We just love that. So we follow that. We follow God. He's all powerful. Number two, He relates to us with sensitivity. Not that He gets He doesn't get his feelings hurt. As in he's sensitive. No, he really, he recognizes that we're sensitive, that we get our feelings hurt all the time, right? That that we're easily offended, we're easily angered, that we can easily be to be prone to fear, the fear of the unknown, right? And so when he relates to us, so he is a father who comes to us in sensitivity, recognizing our frailty. And so he comes and he doesn't condemn us. And he doesn't you know, he doesn't just sit there and beat, beat us over the heads and you're terrible, right? You know, he relates to us with sensitivity and say, hey, I know if I if I came in all my power and all of my authority every day and just put it over you, you would literally live in like ah fear, shrieking every day, right? But no, he comes in sensitivity, knowing who we are in our brokenness and our in our places where we have issues, right? It says, I'm sensitive to where you are. I'll relate to you that way. Number three, we said he relates to us with compassion. He relates to us with compassion. Remember, it says uh, a bruised reed and a smoldering, excuse me, uh, 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 a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not put out. We said last week, uh, a bruised reed does this. You bruise it and in time it just falls, right? And it can never stand back up. It's literally in the process. As soon as you bruise it, it's in the process of dying. Smoldering wick is the same way. You put it out, the smoke cloud comes up, and the fire is put out. It can never put itself back to a fire. It's literally now in the process of dying. But we say that God relates to us as one who has compassion. He has compassion. Therefore, in the process of our dying, he's all about putting us back to life. And that's huge. Do you know God that way? And the fourth thing we said is that he is faithful. He relates to us with faithfulness. He is tireless in his perseverance to never give up in his patience to make sure that he's doing everything that he can to move us towards life and to wholeness. And we said at the end, do you know God this way? When you get behind his presence to begin to take this next step into the unknown, do you relate to God this way? As a God who is all-powerful yet is sensitive, relates to us with compassion and with faithfulness. Because what happens is when you know him that way, it's amazing the level of confidence you have in walking out every step of every day. Because that's who he is. He's a father who cares for us by the way he relates to us. And we say, hey, we want to ask God, awaken us to an understanding of knowing you and relating to you this way. God, do this work in us. So the second thing we're going to talk about today is knowing God as a caring father by the way he fights for us knowing God as a caring father by the way he fights for us so let me tell you what I'm going to do this morning i'm going to lay out four things we're going to basically go through all of Isaiah 42 we're going to finish it up this morning i'm just going to just, just blow through it and we're going to name four things that describe God fighting for us okay i'm going to name those four things and then what i'm going to do at the very end i'm going to come back and say now Let's talk about the defining characteristic of God that empowers or that, that causes him to relate to us in all of these ways. Are you excited about that, the defining characteristic? And I'm going to say up front that if we don't understand the defining characteristic that I'm going to name then we're not fully grasping what it means to be in relationship with Jesus. That's a pretty big statement, isn't it? I know. Can I really back it up? We'll see. All right, here we go. Isaiah 42, starting in verse 5. Let's read. Going through verse 13. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth, and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place. And new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it. You islands and all who live in them. Let the desert and its towns, raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people of Selah sing for joy and shout from the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands. Verse 13, hear this. The Lord will march out like a mighty man. Like a warrior, he will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies now at the end of isaiah 41 we said that god came and said hey everybody there is a servant who is coming he will be for all of the nations and he looks at us by the way did your gods tell you about that of course they didn't because they can't talk because they're worthless is what he says right and then in verse 1 through 4 of isaiah 42 he says but listen here is the servant And actually the reality is this servant is for all of the nations, for every single one of you who would put your hope in him. This is good news about the servant. I've brought you here as a trick. I want to defend myself, but what I'm really doing is getting you here so you'll recognize how awesome I am and how awesome my servant is, so you will be compelled to give your life to him and to put your hope in him. This is awesome what God does in his love. We said the love for the nations, those who are outside of Israel, all those who are distant and far removed. And he says, then my servant will come. And what he's going to do is if you put your hope in him, he will guard you, he'll protect you, he'll fight for you, he'll be in a relationship with you. With you. He will speak to you, do all these amazing things in your life. It's going to be awesome if you will do this. And so in verse, in basically one through nine of 42, he just begins to talk about the servant and the servant we know was Jesus. We read about that in Matthew 12, that Jesus represents the servant, the servant who was to come. And so, so God is talking about the servant and he talks about the servant. He says, I'm sending the servant on your behalf. And then he describes how he relates to the servant. And ultimately, what I want you to see here is that this is how God, the Father, and relating to the servant, will relate to all of us who now in relationship with him have become his servants. So let's name just four things. There's a jillion things we can pull for this. I'm just pulling out four, probably because I'm lazy. Right? Just four just for the morning. Here we go. Number one, our father is an initiator. Our father. Is an initiator. He makes the first move. You've read you've heard before God we are able to love because God first loved us, right? And so God initiated this love relationship, this action of love, this movement forward of love. And so we see here is God initiating. We see specifically in that God wants to move. And so he initiated, he makes it happen, right? He actively makes it happen. In verse six, we see this a few things. Let's pull up verse six if you can, Eddie. It says this it says, I the Lord called the servant to action. So it's basically like the servant sitting there as if we're sitting by the the red phone. You remember Batman back in the day had his red phone? Like we're sitting there just waiting for the phone call to initiate the movement forward of the servant being released. God is initiating. No one recognized that they were waiting for something, right? But God said, listen, I'm sending a servant. Wait for it. I'm initiating the movement forward. I recognize. I'm a father who fights in fighting that I have to initiate. I don't just sit back and see what happens. No, I move. I initiate. This is what I do. He says he took hold of his hand, took hold of his hand. Listen, we, it's, I don't know if you know, it snowed this past week and there's a lot of ice on the ground. And so Sarah, little Sarah and I, who's six years old, right, we're walking along, and I'm watching her do the whole slipping thing, right, and she's almost falling, right? And so I'm looking, and I'm walking over, so what do I do? She's in the process of almost falling. I reach over, initiate the action, grab hold of her hand to guard her, to protect her, and I'll hold her up. And then she starts just playing and slipping on, just for the fun of it, right, because she can, because she knows I have her. I am a father who is initiated the action of reaching my hand down, and I will walk her all the way to her seat to make sure that she's okay, and I will close the door and tell her, put your seatbelt on, right? Because that's what a father does. I'm initiating the action forward to make sure. He's saying, I'm initiating this, right? I took hold of his hand. I initiate the action, and I will walk all the way through to the end with him. The next thing that we see here is this. It says, little hand needs to keep you, says he will keep you, meaning that he will guard and protect the servant. Keep you. I will guard you. I'll bring you and I will keep you and make sure that you're safe. Everything's taken care of. Right. And last one we see is he a make you to be a covenant, make you to be a covenant, meaning to empower him for the purpose that God has for him for us. So what we're seeing here is simply all these actions Action verbs initiated by God for the one that he called on behalf of the ones that he wants to move in, us. Our father is an initiator in how he relates to us, moving on our behalf because he wants to. Do you know God as an initiator, or do you just see him as that deistic view of the clockmaker universe? If he puts things into action, then he just vamooses out of the way and he's no longer involved. Do you... You may not believe that, but do you practically live your life that way as you relate to God? Thinking he's not actually involved, he's not actually initiated, he's not actually moving on your behalf. Listen, most of us do. We live in fear that God's not going to move. And I'm saying, no, he's a God who's already initiated movement. Do you know him? He fights for us by initiating in advance. This is who he is. The second thing we see is our Father speaks to us. And I've spoken at length in the last several months about Well, it looks like God moving and speaking in the lives of his children. You're all, those of you who are in relationship with Jesus today, you're in relationship ultimately because he began to move. He was speaking in you. You heard his voice, this conviction deep in your hearts. He was speaking to you. He's still speaking today, right? Verse 9, this powerful verse about him speaking says, New things I declare, and before they happen, I announce them to you. Man, don't you love that? He says, listen, hey, new things are happening. I'm continually, man. You're just like it's all sorts of unknowns in 2011. The servant's moving, and I'm letting you know in advance. There's 2011's coming, and I don't want you to be lost. So what I want you to do is I want you to be in my presence. I want you to follow me, and when you do, there'll be things that you will have conviction about, things that you will know because I'm speaking them to you in advance because it's who I am. All your other gods, they're not going to speak to you. You can read all the books that you want to. You can go and spend all the time you want to at meetings and conferences and all this kind of garbage. But if you Sit at my feet. I will tell you things that you need to know. These things have their place, but let me tell you, the primary thing is sitting at my feet, being in my presence, because I will speak to you. If we tag on and continue on in chapter uh, 42 of Isaiah, we see this specific, like verse 9, specifically linked with verse 18 and 20. And what we see here, God literally says about, it says figuratively, actually, about Israel that they are deaf and blind. And then in verse 20, he says, to Israel, you have seen many things, but you pay no attention. And your ears are opening, at the, or excuse me, your ears are open, meaning they're actually hearing, but you do not listen. Now, this is powerful here as, as, as seeing how God fights for us for this. Basically, what he's saying, is, hey, there's a bunch of church people out there, and they're around God moving all day, every day. They see things, they can even tell stories, they... They are hearing things about how God is moving, but they're not actually responding. They're not actually following in line with what God has been speaking. But God says this, and hear this. This is the faithfulness of our Father, how he relates to us and fights for, fights for us. He says, even when you are deaf and even when you are blind, I'm still speaking. I'm still speaking. He says, hey, listen to verse 20. It just said that. You have seen many things, but you pay no attention. Your ears are open, but you do not listen because he's speaking. He's moving. And what he's saying is, I am a God, my as a God, I, as your father who fights for you, I am fighting for you even when you're not paying attention. I'm still speaking. I'm still moving. So when people come to me saying, Steve, God's just not moving in my life. I'm just not hearing him. I'm not in his presence. And I say, and, and I want to say in great compassion, we'll open your ears, idiot. Now, of course, I would never say that's not very pastoral, but you know what I'm getting at. I'm making a joke here. But the reality is there's just this reality of God always moving, God always speaking. We need to know him that way. Number four, or excuse me, number three, our God is impartial. Our God is impartial. He doesn't play favorites. Verse 10 says, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. And he names all the ends of the earth, the Kedar, the Shudar, whatever they are, right? And so when he has all these Dars and, and all of them are distant from him, they're all disconnected from him. And what he says is, listen, my servant is becoming on behalf of all of humanity and all of creation, even to those who are most distant and far removed in their affection towards me. I am for all humanity. And it says so much so that when I reach the ends, if my impartiality of reaching them is it will just spring forth. It will just have to happen that new songs of praise and of thanksgiving basically go, Oh, my gosh, you're awesome. We had no idea. We were worshiping all these worthless gods over here, spending all of our time on worthless things, but you're awesome. And all like, I got to do is go, Oh, I got to sing all day long because you're so great. He's impartial. He says, Even to those who are either close or distant, I will move because I'm impartial. Number four, a Father is zealous for us. Our father is zealous for us. We said in verse 13, says, he will march out like a mighty man, like a warrior. He will stir up his zeal with a shout. He will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. Why do you think, guys, that you love Braveheart and Gladiator so much? those moments where william wallace rides through right he makes some good jokes about where lightning bolts come from and stuff right all this stuff you know what i'm talking about you can laugh it's okay it's church you all this stuff going on right all this stuff going on and he oh, what does he do he comes down he says i am william wallace and the whole thing goes i see a group of my countrymen Standing up to tyranny, right? You one day, when the whole thing goes on about, hey, you're going to stand up and say you fought and you didn't back down. You were a middle man, They're like, Yeah, right? And all of a sudden, he's just stirring up this zeal and it's stirring up this passion. Why do you love it? Because it's the heart cry of God for himself. He wants it to be the heart cry for his people. Stir up zeal. Hey, listen, I'm doing it for myself. I'm literally zeal is simply this. It's defined as this great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. You know what zeal is? Oh, yeah, and you're stirring it up, right? You see the pep rally. It's like sitting there every every football game. It's so funny. You have one of the commentators sits there and says, I wonder what kind of inspirational speech the coaches make at halftime, right? He says, oh, rah, I'm going to go out and take the field. God is saying, as a father who is a mighty warrior, I sit there, and I get passionate, and I stir up my zeal. And then he has the audacity in in verse 14 to kind of express what this looks like. This is just gross about God. It says, For a long time I've kept silent. I've been quiet and held myself back, but now, like a woman in childbirth, that is a powerful picture. If you've all been around birth, you know what that looks like, right? For he, he, God describes himself like this, right? It's not sacrilegious. He says it about himself, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp, and I pant. It's this whole stirring up the zeal, stirring up the zeal. And then he paints this whole picture as, I will lay waste the mountains and the hills and turn rivers into islands. It says Basically, I don't care what gets in my way. If it's in my way, I'm going to destroy it because in my zeal, like a mighty warrior, like a warrior who starts up his zeal to shout, I will raise a battle cry and triumph over our enemies. I mean, that's descriptive. Do you know him that way? Do you live, do you live every day in the confidence of a God who fights for you? He literally stirs up his zeal. He has his William Wallace Braveheart moment as he looks at us as a people and says, I'm stirring up my zeal and my passion to fight for the ones that I love. I don't care what gets in my way. God forbid, I forbid that anything, because it's going to melt it. It's going to breathe. Oh, this is who I am. Do we know him that way? Our father is a zealous one, a zealous one. We need to know God. We need to know him by how he relates to us. We need to know him by how he fights for us as an initiator of breakthrough, not just a responder, that he speaks to us, even though we're not doing a great job of listening and responding, that we see him as impartial, that he lo- he's loving and fighting for all of creation, not just a select few, and he's zealous for our breakthrough. He's zealous for our freedom, doing all that he can to make this happen. Now, this is who he is. But the question we have to ask is kind of the defining characteristic that we need to begin to understand about God that will ultimately cause us to live in a place of confidence and trust is this. The answer to this question, why does God move? Now, a Sunday school answer is because he loves us. And that's the level of truth in that, right? But it's, 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 it's a... A facet of his love is deeper than that. The thing that causes God to move. Why does he do this? Have we earned it? Are we special enough that he says, oh my God, you're just so great. You totally earned this. You have purchasing power. you purchased this. No, no. The only thing that causes God to move is his grace. It is his grace. It is one of the defining characteristics that... Cause us to understand who God is and how he relates to us and our relationship to him. Now, pull up these two uh, definitions real quick, Eddie. I'm going to walk you through this grace understanding. Now, I'm going to say this. I'm just, I mean, we're just just scratching the the surface of, of this understanding of grace. We may spend some more time talking about it. But grace is this, simply receiving something we haven't earned. I mean, that's a very simplistic answer, right? Receiving something that we haven't earned. A lot of times people will intermix grace and mercy, but mercy is not receiving something we do not deserve. All right, so, so let's, say, let's say my dream had come true, right? We're living in my dream world now. When I turned 16 years old, those of you who are around back then, you'll get this more than the youngsters here. And, and when, I graduated, when I turned 16, it was 19, oh, somewhere in the 80s, right? And the vehicle that I wanted was the big K5 Chevy Blazer, right with a tow package, and tinted windows, and really big wheels that made the little five foot nine squirt that I was look about six ten and huge and dangerous, right? So I wanted this like K5 Blazer. I wanted it bad, and I'm, so I'm praying for it. I'm looking for it all, and and so when I turned sixteen. Or this is dream world, not reality, right? I got nothing when I turned sixteen. Just saying, but but in my dream world, I got the K5 Blazer with the tow package, tinted windows, and big wheels, and I looked tough, right? And so, so, 16, I open the door. My dad goes, Surprise! I go, Oh my gosh, K5 Blades with a Tony Packers in the windows and big wheels. Oh my gosh, this is awesome! Yes! And I look and says, Dad, I can't believe you got this for me. Why did you get it? And he goes, Grace. I go, I didn't earn it? No, <laughs> trust me. Right? No, you didn't do anything to earn it. Simply a gift of my grace. I wanted to give you something that you haven't earned fantastic oh my gosh so what do i do i hop in the car and i speed to every single one of my my friend's houses and honk the horn hey come out here right so i get to like the third house and i see a turn up here like this and so i just i just speed off and take off turn on the corner about 45 miles per hour i go on two wheels turn around the corner and right there is sitting a police officer dang it right he pulls me over i have my freak out moment i go home My mom, with her intuition, says, what's wrong? As I'm huddled in a mass of uh, this, whatever it's called, little, what's the thing there? Uh, Fetal position, thank you, Randall, for not saying anything. Uh, Fetal position, you know, sitting there the whole moment going, oh, my God, I'm so much trouble, 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 trouble. She's like, what's wrong? I'm like, my dad walks over. I tell them I got a speeding ticket. And I know I deserve to have my K5 blazer taken away from me. My dad lays hands on me and says, mercy. You deserve to have it taken away, but I'm going to allow you to keep it, right? Not receiving something that we do deserve. So I received it, did nothing to earn it. I didn't get it taken away, even though I deserved it. Now, now that we fully understand grace and mercy, fantastic. Now, now, let me talk about grace. Receiving something that we haven't earned. And we start looking at our lives and we start talking about what this looks like. <clears throat> when... We look at God as our father and say, God, why are you moving? Why are you doing this? He simply says, grace. I'm moving in your life. I'm I'm responding. I'm relating to you in the sensitive way. I am fighting for you. And it's absolutely nothing that you have done to earn it. You can't earn it. You can't purchase it. You can't pray enough. You can't read your Bible enough. Right? You can't evangelize enough. You can't do anything enough to earn anything I'm going to give you. The flip side of that is all of the giftings that you possess in life, your ability to make money, the ability to you have to build relationships with people, the ability that you have to do whatever it is that you think that you're good at, that sets you apart from everybody else, is simply a K-5 blazer given to you that you have not earned. Everything that you possess, people say to me, well, Steve, I worked hard to earn what I have. And I say, well, who gave you the ability to work hard? Uh, I'll tell you, God. It was a gift of his grace, and there has to be an awakening to this reality that God moves because it's who he is. He doesn't move because of who you are. We are good at being selfish as human beings and making it all about us. And I'm telling you, God moving has nothing to do with you. He doesn't move you, he doesn't move ultimately because he loves you. He moves because of grace. He could love you and still not move. But because of his grace, Because of his desire to give you something that you have never earned, he moves in your life. And it should define everything we understand about how God relates to us. It should set us free from feeling like we have to earn and to work hard to please him. It sets us free just to be in a relationship with him and to walk with him. Grace defines everything for us. So, Think of it this way. Every December 1st, I, as a kid, as a kid, I would have this crisis moment because I would go, oh, my gosh, what if I haven't been good enough this year? And the jolly fat man up there in the North Pole knows it. He's in cahoots with my mom, and she knows it for sure. So what do I do? December 1st to December 24th, I mean, I am the best kid in the history of the world. I mean, I am doing everything that I'm supposed to do, right? I am, like, nice to everybody My- my neighbor who I hate, my gosh, I love her for 24 days, Grr, right? It's like all of this stuff going on. I'm perfect to my mom. I'm perfect. And I'm like, yes, man, let me clean that up for you. I just love you so much, mom, right? And I did more with my mom because, she, I don't know, she had more relationship with Santa, I guess. I don't really know. But but this whole thing going on. And so for 24 days, I recognized that I had to be good. And then on the, on the morning of the 25th, I would wake up. And I had 15 stairs on on my steps going down, 15. I'd get to step seven or eight, and I'd go, and I'd pray, God, Lord, just make it happen. And I would turn the corner, and boom, there's the spread. And all of a sudden, in the moment, in this moment, I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking to myself, understanding clearly that my ability to receive the gifts that are sitting there was solely dependent on my behavior by how good I had been, by the good things that I did for others. See, what happened is we've married this whole ideal. If you were good at Christmas, you will get stuff. And so with the birth of Jesus, we've connected this whole understanding of being good and doing good things will get you stuff, all connected with this this interlapping thing of, santa and jesus and so then we had this whole mentality now if i just do good stuff i will get what i deserve if i do the right things i'm good enough and push over the goodness edge then i'll receive what i deserve which is gifts because i've been good enough and so what we've done is we've completely divorced the reality of grace the reality of grace being what jesus coming was all about and this Brought it back to this whole idea of you work hard enough and you'll get something. There's no reality of grace being mentioned in that at Christmas. But the whole understanding is that we live that way, don't we? We do live in that place of if I do good things and I'll do all this stuff, I'll get what I deserve. So here's a couple of things in Scripture that will begin to paint a reality for us of grace. Number one, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You all know this verse. It's not new to you. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not, not of yourself it is the gift of god not as a result of works so that no one may boast so you see that for for by grace you've been saved that's not anything that you've done it's simply a gift of god which means god is the initiator of our salvation it is a gift it's not a result of anything that you've done. So you've heard this all your life. You can't do enough good things to get to heaven. If someone says, hey, are you going to heaven? If, you, if they believe in heaven, you say, hey, are you going to heaven? They're like, yeah, how do you know? Well, I've been pretty good, right? And we look at it and say, no, no, no. That's not what it's about. There's no doing good things. Doing good things will not get you to heaven. You can never be good enough. You can never be good enough. We all know this. You can't be good enough. Goodness never gets you to heaven. What gets you to heaven Is the gift of grace. You coming, recognizing who God is, responding by being in relationship with him, and in that moment putting your hope in him. And all of a sudden grace is poured out. Grace, this understanding of a free gift that you haven't earned, is poured out into your life. So, we have this understanding here. We can't do enough. Ephesians 2, and then we skip down to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 9, He's, and has he said to me and, at, and he, excuse me, and he has said to me, my grace, God, this is Paul, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for power is perfected in weakness. That's God speaking to him. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So let's read it again. God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you for power. His power is perfected in weakness. And Paul says, most gladly then I will boast about my weaknesses. My weaknesses are awesome so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Now, this verse is written in context of Paul having a thorn in his side. You remember that? Paul's sitting there going, oh, there's this thorn. We don't really know what that thorn is. All People have all sorts of ideas what it is. But reality is we have no idea what that thorn is. And the side was. But we know Paul didn't like it. It was uncomfortable. He wanted it to go away. So he prayed. Hey, I prayed for healing, all this stuff for all other people. God, do it for me. And he says, no. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you. Wow. So what do we, what do, we do here with this? What do we picture here with the grace, this deeper level of understanding of grace? Now, what... Paul, basically, and what God is trying to get across to Paul is, listen, he's saying, "You, when you're weak, when you're vo- when you're vulnerable, when you have no ability in your own strength to do the things that you need to do to get to where you want to go, my friend, that is the moment you celebrate. That is the best place that you can be. And he says, basically, because over here, in your own power, you try to do everything in your own strength. But over here... When you're weak, then you recognize you can do absolutely nothing, and I can do it through you. So think of it this way. Football player, <clears throat> big football player, right? One of those big linebackers It's runs a 4 three forty. He's 245 pounds of just one muscle from head to toe, right? He's this massive dude, right? And He's on the punt coverage team. He's making his way down the field, and the wedge is coming this direction. It's illegal now, I know, but the wedge was coming this way, right? And, and all of a sudden, boom, he just goes head first. This other dude comes in head first. They collide, and what happens? Both of them fall on the ground. One of them shakes it off. The other one is paralyzed. And all of a sudden, in the moment... This superhuman, super athlete who could just probably jump 39 inches off the ground just standing still, right? Who can just lift millions of pounds of weight or at least thousands of pounds or hundreds of pounds, right? He's this massive monstrosity of a human being. All of a sudden in the moment becomes completely helpless, completely vulnerable, open to being exploited. Because he can do nothing to protect himself whatsoever. And God has the audacity to say, my friend, that is awesome. Because what you've just done is taken your power and your control of making things happen out of your own hands. And now you're completely helpless. And you can't do anything on your own strength. You can't get anything that you actually need. Only I can do it. And I want to tell you that is the safest place to be when you are 100% vulnerable and 100% needy. And Paul recognized it and said, therefore, I'm going to boast that I'm 100% vulnerable. Because scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble those who think that they can do it all on their own strength, who live life every day thinking they can earn the money that they need and they have the power to make things happen, they can network over here and do all this stuff, when people think they can make life happen in their own strength he said the greatest gift that can happen to you is to lose everything because in that moment you become 100% weak and desperate for me and there's no safer place to be than 100% needy because when that happens I pour out my grace all the things that you need that you've never Earned ever in your life, and I do it not because of who you are, but because of who I am. I pour myself out because of who I am into your life, and I can do it a whole lot easier when you live every day aware of your neediness, your vulnerability, and your weakness. Because I cannot move through those who think they can make it all happen in their own strength. Therefore, celebrate your weakness. And so the question is this, in your life, do you boast in your vulnerability? Do you get excited when you reach the end of your abilities and have no way to produce breakthrough in a breakthrough needy situation? Does your weakness help you sleep at night because you know it's the safest place to be in the place of weakness where his power dwells? Does this seem crazy, backwards, and unrealistic? If so, then you have a lot to learn about grace. The characteristic that defines every the, the very reason why God relates to you the way that he does. Grace. God pours it out to those who say, I boast in this, as Paul said. I boast in my weakness and my vulnerability. I boast in all of these weaknesses because I know I can't. Listen, those who grab hold of grace and have it revealed to them in their life, wake up every day with a crisis moment saying, God, if you don't show up today, I am screwed. That's the word that you would really use if you're by yourself and not in church. I am in trouble. Do you wake up every day saying, if God doesn't move, I'm in trouble? We have to get to that place because there's no greater place of freedom than looking and saying, I can't. But you can. I'm going to follow your presence because I'm in the unknowns. But I have confidence in you because of you being a father that relates to us with sensitivity and compassion and who fights for us. And you do it not because of what I do and because of who I am, but because of who you are. Listen, that I just said a lot of stuff in a short period of time. I know. And you're like, I don't understand what that means or how to make that happen. And what I want to say to you to end is something very simple. You can't make it happen, and you can't have it revealed. You can't all of a sudden go, oh, I have enlightenment. No, it has to be something that is revealed to you as you get into his presence and say, God, reveal yourself to me. And when we sit there and say, God, I am broken, I am weak, and I'm in your presence, what do I do? You know what he says? He screams, grace, grace, grace. And all of a sudden, like a flood, all of these things about who he is as a father who cares for us, floods us. And we go, yes, I boast in this place of weakness. Let's pray. So, Father, as I come and talk about this, let's just be honest. I'm clueless about the depth of your grace. And so, Father, I know if I'm clueless, then we're all walking in some level of cluelessness. And so what we're coming and asking for this morning uh, is simply a, we ask for grace, we want to receive something we haven't earned, of understanding of your grace, of how you move in our lives, as our Father who cares for us, as uh, our Father who fights for us. And so Lord, we invite you to come this morning and, and, and move in our lives, God. We want to, we know that you're speaking, we want to hear you, we want to To recognize you touching those areas of our lives, God, that maybe keep us from listening well and from seeing you well. Lord, I'm asking this morning for the beautiful and wonderful gift of conviction. That when kindness and with mercy that you move and you touch us and you say, hey, here's the area that's keeping you from me and you touch it the gift of conviction so that we can see you better.